Welcome to KC Connect, brought to you by MyBeck's employer relations team. Across this series of short episodes, we will provide insight and expertise on some of the most common challenges for our members and discuss the case law shaping the employer relations landscape. My name is James Cleary, Employer Relations Executive in Cork, and I am joined by my colleague, Sophie Crosby, Regional Director for Cork. And for the next 10 minutes, we will discuss the topic of penalisation as it applies in the workplace. We hear the, pr- the phrase penalisation and employment bandied about an awful lot these days, Sophie, when it comes to whistleblowers. Have you any insights? Yeah, in practical terms, penalisation is basically engaging in retaliatory adverse action against an employee for invoking their rights or opposing unlawful acts under a piece of employment legislation. It's important to note that lots of different legislation, both occupational health and safety and employment related, provides for protection against penalisation. And the Protective Disclosures Act, which primarily protects whistleblowers, is obviously topical right now, and it's just been amended and expanded and due to come into effect on the 1st of January next. But anti-penalisation protections have been around for quite a while in employment legislation. And generally speaking, where a piece of employment legislation provides a right or entitlement, you can expect that there will be additional protection for employees who seek to rely on or enforce their rights, and additional protection against retaliatory action by the employer. So, for example, an employee who seeks to enforce their national minimum wage entitlements is protected or an agency worker who looks to have the JLC or SEO rate or some other generally applicable rate applied to them is protected. Or even an employee who's requesting a contract of employment or to be placed on a particular band of hours would be protected. So, absolutely, Sophia. And how often what we see in the employment rights statutes is protection for employees who invoke their rights under the legislation or oppose in good faith an unlawful act using lawful means or who give employee evidence in a third party proceeding under a particular statute or even when they tell their employer that they will do any of these things of the list above. Sophie, in which employment legislation does penalisation cases arise most often? When the post, in the past, most often we would have seen cases arise under the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act, um, where an employee believes that they've engaged in protected act and then believe that they've suffered some detriment in retaliation for their protected act. However, with the enactment of the protected disclosures legislation and the new amendments, employers should expect to see far more of these cases arising in the future. Which then brings us, James, to the question of detrimental treatment. What types of acts do you see amounting to detrimental treatment? Well, as well as the obvious ones such as dismissal, demotion, whether by way of reducing salary or even reducing work status, other things that could amount to a detrimental treatment include deliberately transferring or laying somebody off, uh, reductions in earnings or or hours of work, changes of work practices or placing someone on unpaid suspension. Recently, the WRC held that denying someone access to an interview or a fair selection process was actually a detrimental act as well. It's important to note that It's not the action per se that gives rise to the penalisation. It's all about the context of the circumstances surrounding the management decision being taken and then implemented. That's right. And in the wrong place at the wrong time, even less obvious things such as failure to give access to training or negative performance review could amount to detrimental treatment. For example, under the new um, amendment to the protective disclosures legislation, even sending an employee for a psychiatric or other medical assessment without good reason is, is set out as amounting to detrimental treatment. At the same time, it's important not to overstate the risk. There are lots of good, solid reasons for sending an employee to the company doctor. 
which wouldn't really amount to penalisation. And I think it's fair to say the context really is everything here. And when you read cases in this area, you can tend to see attendances by some employees who may well be upset about something in particular to link a series of unrelated events and allege that, that you know, that this is all detrimental treatment or even penalisation. And that that can really be upsetting then for an employer to face an allegation of penalisation. And they may simply be doing their best to try and manage a difficult situation or circumstance. Not dealing with a complaint of bullying in good time or even individual employees taking private legal action against each other have all been, been held not to be a detrimental treatment based on a particular set of circumstances and applying at a particular point in that time. You're right. In fact, it might be easier and more practical to think of it in terms of what isn't detrimental treatment. Any reasonable day-to-day management action that you can stand over for good reason and with a clearly documented procedure and substantive decision-making process is unlikely to amount to detrimental treatment or meet the overall test for penalisation. For example, the main case under the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act involved a hairdresser who'd complained about the quality of latex gloves. His employer alleged that he'd been dismissed for poor typekeeping and having others calling in sick for him. But in evidence, the employer admitted buying cheaper latex gloves, couldn't point to his policy around the use of chemicals and was vague about when warnings were issued. But everyone agreed that the employee had been dismissed and had been had complained about the quality of the latex gloves. Yeah. In this particular case, he couldn't demonstrate that the dismissal had happened for a reason other than because of the protected act of complaining about the safety of his latex gloves. Yeah, I think it's important to note really here, Sophie, that the employer did not know his policy. He couldn't clearly point to the warnings and a clear paper trail and he couldn't demonstrate procedural fairness and so he couldn't demonstrate that the dismissal occurred for a different reason. So that dismissal then was held to be penalisation. In terms of risks, Sophie, what are the risks if an employer penalises any employee? Yeah, the statute puts of hefty penalties for getting it wrong, which is why it's important to reach out and get advice early. Most of the statutes use the formula of two years remuneration rather than two years loss of earnings, as we'd be familiar with under the Unfair Dismissals Act. And in protected disclosures cases, the amount can rise to five years, which can be reduced in in certain circumstances. We also know that where individual rights are being infringed, the decision makers can take into account the key principles of not only the need to compensate the affected employee, but also to deter repeated such behaviour in the future. Yeah, and there are also other legal remedies available to employees who believe that they have actually been penalised. Under the protected disclosure legislation, an employee can actually apply to the circuit court for an injunction to have the wages paid pending a hearing before the WRC and also take civil legal actions uh, if, if necessary. Also of note is that the Protected Disclosures Amendments Act creates a new category now for compensation for non-employees at a maximum ceiling of €15,000. That's right. And under the Employment Equality Act, where a similar protection against penalisation exists, but it's called victimisation under that legislation, you can have different awards against you under the heading of victimisation in addition to any award for any discriminatory treatment or discriminatory dismissal. But it's important to say that an employee can't benefit twice for a claim for unfair dismissal. So, for example, you can't succeed in a claim for unfair dismissal under the Unfair Dismissals Act and the Protected Disclosures Act or under the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act and under the Unfair Dismissal. Act. 
But you might have a situation where a single employment relationship gone wrong gives rise to two different claims under two different pieces of legislation. For example, there was a protected disclosure case recently where an employer had attempted to, an employee had attempted to make a protected disclosure to his employer and his employer didn't want to know about it. So the protected disclosure was made externally, which went through an independent investigation. At the same time, the employee went out sick and then was attempting to return to work um, and sought reasonable accommodation for his disability in the form of a phased return to work. And his employer delayed allowing him to return to work for quite a number of months and ended up not only with the employee coming back to work eventually, but awards were made under both protected disclosure legislation and the Employment Equality Act. So mistakes in this area can be expensive. Mm, exactly. Um, I think it's important to note that sometimes you'll actually see cases coming up in this area where you have employees who are, for whatever reason, deeply unhappy or frustrated in their job. And then so often what happens here is whether an employee who is aggrieved in their employment, can they then succeed in a claim for penalisation or not? And we saw this come up recently in the Supreme Court decision, which found that there was an inconsistency between the then whistleblower's legislation and the Code of Practice. This case considered whether or not a personal grievance could amount to a protected disclosure. And interestingly, the employee said that he told his employer he wanted to do different work as the work he was he was doing caused him pain. The company disputed his version of events, saying he was in pain, but he didn't say it was because of the work he was doing. His employment ended a few days later. The Labour Court had said it was a personal grievance and as such couldn't amount to protected disclosure under the Code of Practice which the Supreme Court disagreed with, as they found the whistleblower's code of practice was inconsistent with the original legislation. That's right, and this issue has now been dealt with under the new amendment to the Protected Disclosures Act, which is coming into effect on the 1st of January. And this amendment expressly calls out that an issue concerning interpersonal grievances, which exclusively affect the, affect the reporting person, won't be a relevant wrongdoing for the purpose of the Act. But those grievances should, of course, still be dealt with through other internal procedures. Is there a risk, James, that an employer may inadvertently penalise an employee? Yeah, sure. I mean, there is, particularly where an employer may be trying to manage a difficult situation. And, you know, if there's a set of complex facts in existence, in reality, we also have to be mindful of human nature here. You know, often if somebody is hurt by something said or done, the natural human instinct is to respond in some way even as a manager or a small business owner, and then to react immediately. But as an employer, that's often the worst thing that you can actually do. And there's a real need to step back and, and, and get some objectivity or advice uh, in a particular situation and make sure that your actions as an employer are measured and reasonably appropriate for that particular set of circumstances. Any other suggestions, Sophie, that uh, an employer can do to help protect themselves further? Yeah, for larger and even some SME employers, you can protect yourself by having clearly defined channels for reporting protected disclosures and taking steps to try and insulate those disclosure channels from day-to-day -day management decisions. So if the person managing or investigating an alleged protected disclosure has no knowledge or involvement in any other management decision, it's an additional line of protection for both the whistleblower and employers. It protects the genuine whistleblowers because they have somebody dealing with their protected disclosure who's one step removed from their day-to-day -day management. It also protects employers because it ensures that they can take legitimate management action grounded in evidence without being influenced by the existence of a protected disclosure, whether deliberately or inadvertently. Are there other supports, James? 
it's definitely a complex area, I suppose, Sophie, is what's most important to note. And I suppose fundamentally, if there's any doubt, members should really seek further advice and discuss any concerns with their IBEC executive. So on that note, I'd like to conclude this episode and thank you very much for listening. For more content like this, be sure to explore the audio hub on ibec.ie and follow ibec on Twitter at ibec underscore IRL.